James. So I want to encourage you in these next two to three months as we go through that book that uh, you would read through the book of James. Maybe you want to read through it multiple times. You also have this insert in your bulletin. These are some verses put together by our Education Commission that go through the book of James. You feel free to memorize them if you would like to, like we did last year. But the main purpose is, is written there is that you would just meditate on these verses that fit each chapter and find ways to apply them to your life. So I'm going to stick this in my Bible and I'm going to have it there where I'll be able to refer to that often. Now, if you really want to immerse yourself in the book of James while we're going through it, we have a connection with Right Now Media, which is a vast library of Christian resources that you have access to. Our school uses it. And if, if you've not been connected with Right Now Media, call the church and our secretary will help get you started on that. We're recommending Francis Chan or Tony Evans, two great Bible expositors who will put together really good resource material on the book of James to supplement what we're doing here. So those are just some ways that as the year begins, you're getting in the habit of every day. I'm in the word. I'm reading God's word. I'm praying. I'm studying God's word. And then I'm growing in my faith. What I like to do is go through a book verse by verse and pull in from other places. So that's what we're going to be doing here. Protestant reformer Martin Luther didn't care much for the book of James. He called it a right, strawy epistle. But I love it. I've always loved the book of James. And many others love this book too. I love it because it's so practical. It's a virtual how-to book on the Christian life and living the Christian life. James uses the highest percentage of imperative verbs of any book in the New Testament. He's also very concise. He gets straight to the point. And he uses great illustrations that help make his point clear. Though I would consider myself more Pauline in influence, the Pauline writings, I do love the book of James and it really inspires me. And James has a message that the church desperately needs to hear. For he calls us to uncompromising faith. For that's sorely needed in our world today. Churches are filled with half-hearted believers who aren't living out biblical Christianity. But rather a watered-down version. More cultural Christianity. Where we bend our Christianity to fit in with our culture. James challenges that notion. So who is this James? Or rather Jacob as the original Greek and even the Hebrew name him. There are four different Jameses just in the New Testament. But undoubtedly this James is the Lord's brother. James the just as he was called. The leader of the Jerusalem church. Acts twelve seventeen says... But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he, being Peter, described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. This James, the Lord's brother, became the head of the Jerusalem church. And here at the first church council of Jerusalem, we see his authority in Acts 15. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, 
but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. The Apostle Paul also mentions him in Galatians 1.19. He says, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So Paul calls him the Lord's brother. But as James addresses himself to his readers, he's so humble. He calls himself just a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we know from church history that James was stoned to death, martyred for his faith in 62 AD. So his letter had to be written before that. Many New Testament scholars say that the book of James was the first book of the New Testament, written sometime between 45 and 50 AD. We know that there was a famine in the land in that region in 46 AD, and there was a lot of persecution of Christians right in that time frame. So sometime between 45 and 50, we're pretty certain James wrote this letter. Let's just pick a date and call it 48. This letter is very pastoral and ethical. Pastoral in the sense that James is like, the, he feels like the pastor, the overseer, the bishop of a group of Christians, and, and he His heart goes out to them and he wants to provide help. It's very ethical in the sense that James is what he's writing here very much goes in line with Jesus's teaching, especially the Sermon on the Mount. Now, on my Wednesday chats, Kathy and I do together, you can catch up with us on Facebook page on our church uh, website. I'm going through the Sermon on the Mount, just in little pieces. So it's really going to coincide with what James is saying here. Also, this book really reminds you of the book of Proverbs with with the sage wisdom of James. And surprisingly, it's, it's pretty good Greek. Not at the level of Hebrews or Luke Acts, but it's really pretty good. And it's written to, he says, 12 tribes in the dispersion, verse 1. The dispersed ones. What he means by that is 12 tribes. So he's talking about Jewish Christians who are scattered out of Israel into places in the Mediterranean world. That's his audience. That's to whom he's writing. And 12 tribes lets us know that he's not writing primarily to a Gentile audience, but to a Jewish audience who've come to believe in Jesus as Savior. This letter is known as a general epistle or Catholic epistle. And by Catholic, I mean universal is how that word was used then. So not written to just one city, like many of Paul's letters were, but written to a group of people of whom James's letter would have been passed around and read. So we're going to cover verses 1 to 4 today. All right, we've kind of covered verse 1, but let's read James 1, 1 to 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion greetings count it all joy my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing think about when you write a letter to someone 
you're, you're writing a letter to a friend and you usually have send your greetings to them and ask them how it's going and you kind of ease into the subject. Well, James doesn't do that at all. He just dives right in. In fact, he like drops a bomb on these people. Let's say your friend is going through a hard time. Would you say, hey, I heard you're going through a really hard time. Well, you should rejoice about it. Be glad. Have a party. I think the key to this first section is verse 3, where James says, for you know. And that word know there means know by experience. So not just you know this intellectually, you know it in your head, you've heard it, you've read it somewhere. You've experienced it. So you know something. Therefore, your attitude is determined by the truth you hold. It's not just positive thinking or wishful thinking. It's based on facts. Here's an example. Ohio State defeated the University of Miami for the national championship game in 2003 from the 2002 season. We were watching that game with a bunch of folks, and it went into double overtime the game finally ended at 1 a.m., yeah. And so a couple of weeks later, that game was replayed. So the boys and I, when they were, they were younger then, and we watched that game again. This time, we were so relaxed, and we were laughing throughout. Why? Because we knew something. We already knew the outcome of the game and that our team had won. So it was a totally different experience than the nerve-wracking, fingernail-chewing game that we watched until 1 a.m. So James, his readers, know something. What do we know about trials? James tells us a few things that we know. Problems are inevitable. He tells us that in verse 2. He says, when you go through hard times, not if. When? You're going to have problems in this life. In fact, if your problems are all behind you, you're probably a school bus driver. When you stop having problems, check your pulse. You're dead. Problems in life are a required course. They're not an elective. And I know some of us have our PhD, it seems like, in problems. When I was a brand new Christian... I actually remember reading some verses like this and praying, Lord, give me some problems. Give me some trials so I can really grow my faith. I don't pray that anymore because I know they're going to come without praying. And I'm convinced personally, the reason people have problems is why we have country and Western music. Okay, number two. Problems are unpredictable. Verse two, unpredictable. James says when you meet trials, that literally means you fall into unexpectedly. We have a great example of that with Jesus's story of the Good Samaritan. How how the guy is going along and it says he fell among thieves. He just stumbled into it. You don't schedule trials on your calendar. Now, let me see. Thursday, that looks like that would be a good day for a problem. I'm wide open that day. You know, you're just driving along and you have a flat tire. They, stuff like that just happens. So problems are unpredictable. Problems are varied. Number three, they're varied. He says of various kinds. And literally the word there means multicolored. Interesting word. Many shades and hues of problems. A virtual Baskin Robbins 31 flavors of troubles that you're going to have in life. 
If you've ever tried to match old paint, it's really difficult because there's so many different shades and hues that you can't quite get it right. So James is saying here, problems vary. You know, sometimes they're accidental. You just stumble onto a problem. You didn't mean it. It just happened. Sometimes problems are our own dumb fault. We make choices that are just stupid and we have a big problem as a result. Sometimes other people cause us a problem. And we know that Satan attacks. So James is saying here, there's all kinds of problems, all shades and varieties of problems. Problems are varied. Fourthly, we know this about problems. They're purposeful. I am so glad I'm a Christian because I know my problems have meaning and purpose. They're not meaningless. James calls it the testing of your faith. Pain, someone said, is a process with a purpose. And James mentions three things our trials and problems do for us. They're not meaningless. They have a purpose. What is God trying to teach us through them? What do our problems do for us? First of all, problems purify my faith. Verse 3, he mentions again that we're testing. Well, what's the purpose of testing? Think about when you were in school, right? You had to take tests. The teacher would tell you that the purpose of this test is to show your mastery of the material. Do you know it or not? So you're going to have tests in life to show your mastery of the Christian faith. Do you know what you're talking about? Are you walking the walk? Are you talking the talk? Are you a phony? We're going to have to test you to see if you know what you're talking about. Peter puts it a different way. He uses another illustration in 1 Peter 1, 6-7. In this you rejoice, very similar to James, though now for a little while, if necessary... You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So let's use Peter's analogy of refining gold. What would the gold refiner do? He would have the solid gold before him and then he would heat it up to really hot until the gold would melt into a liquid form and the impurities float to the surface and then he skims them off. So what you have left is pure gold. And then when the refiner looks in the gold and he sees his face, his reflection in it, he knows that the process is completed. So what God is doing in your life is he wants to see Jesus Christ when he looks at you. Jesus wants to see himself in you. So he's going to refine you, not burn you up, to destroy you, but heat you up to remove the bad. Just like you put a tea bag in hot water, right? So that's when the flavor comes out, not when you're just sucking on the bag. All right. Here's a second thing about problems, how we're benefited by them because they fortify my patience. Verse three. James says it produces steadfastness in you, staying power, not passivity, where you just say, what will be, will be. It is what it is. I'm just shrugging my shoulders. No, you're, you become a tenacious Christian. A Christian with stick to this, Who hangs in there, refuses to quit no matter what. I think this is a rare quality more and more in people. We bail at the first problem. 
But God allows trials and problems in our lives so we'll learn to persevere. Because the time will come when you may be faced with a trial so difficult, you might think about, I think I'm just going to turn my back on Christ and walk away. But you won't because you've been through all this other stuff that has fortified your strength. That you can endure this. You know this is going to pass. This too will pass. I can get through this. Jesus has always been faithful to me. I'm not going to abandon him now. These lessons build up strength in you to endure even harder stuff in the future. Thirdly, problems sanctify my character. Verse 4. Trials grow me up. In this verse, verse 4, James just piles on the synonyms. He calls, he says, perfect. It'll make you perfect or mature, which means fit for any task. He says, you'll be complete or whole and you will lack nothing, which means you have everything you need for the battle, totally equipped for the good fight. So it's character development is the bottom line, more like Jesus. God would rather you be holy than happy. I love this quote by Booker T. Washington. He said, no man should be pitied because every day of his life he faces a hard, stubborn problem. It is the man who has no problems to solve, no hardships to face, who is to be pitied. He has nothing in his life which will strengthen and form his character. Nothing to call out his latent powers and deepen and widen his hold on life. A couple things that the Lord uses in your life to bring about this maturity. The two main ways, I think. The first is the word of God. So that's why we have to be in the Bible every day. I mean, if you're not, you're missing out on probably the chief way that God uses to mature you. To be in the word and apply it to your life. The second thing is circumstances. And that's what James is describing here in this section. He's saying the Lord is growing you up through circumstances that he's allowed to happen in your life that will mature you to be more like Christ. Let's say you're a new Christian. You are so zealous for the Lord. Some of you can remember that. And then a problem strikes you and you're befuddled and bewildered. And it's like, what's happened? Am I even saved? What's God doing here? Doesn't he love me anymore? What's going on here? Is he punishing me? No, God has allowed that in your life because he thinks you're ready for it. And he wants you to grow up and be mature, more like Jesus. He he wants you to learn to love really difficult people, so he puts them in your life. He wants you to learn to be peaceful in chaos because it's easy to be peaceful when you're sitting at the beach. But it's really hard when the phone's ringing And the baby's crying and supper's burning and someone rings the doorbell. That's when it's really hard to be peaceful. So James says, we know something during trials. Now, what are we to do about it? He gives us three things in the passage and beyond. The first thing he says to do is rejoice, which seems so counterintuitive, but it's right. It's true. And this isn't faking it. Where you put on a plastic smile and pretend everything's going great. And you tell every, oh, everything's wonderful. Praise the Lord. That's fake. And it's not masochism either. Goody, I get to suffer. I I feel so good when things are so bad. No, it's none of that stuff. 
The text doesn't say enjoy yourself. It says rejoice. And you don't rejoice for the problem. Like, thank you, Lord, for this leukemia. You rejoice in the problem. First Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances. Why? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You rejoice because you know something. You know that God is going to take this bad thing that's happening to you right now and he's going to work good for you in it. Like he did Joseph when he was betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery. He was set, he set in prison for 13 years. God had a plan and a purpose. And he expresses that in Genesis 50, 20. As for you, brothers, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You know that as a Christian. God has an eternal purpose in it for good somehow. So that's why I hang in there. And the difference is my attitude. James says, count it all joy, which means to take a deliberate look, evaluate, make up your mind. You choose to rejoice. You make that decision. You can't control the circumstances that come your way, but you can control how you're going to respond to them. Viktor Frankl has the classic statement on that. He was a Jewish prisoner of war and was in a Nazi concentration camp. He writes, they stripped me naked. They took everything, my wedding ring, my watch, my clothes, I stood there naked and all of a sudden at that moment, I realized that although they could take everything away from me, they could not take away my freedom to choose how I was going to respond to what they did to me. That's power right there. You're not a victim at that point. You're in control of that situation. So when problems strike your life, Are you going to grumble and complain and moan and groan? Or are you going to rejoice? The choice is yours. Second thing to do in the midst of a problem is pray. Down to verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Now, we usually pray during trials. We oftentimes don't pray any other time. But when something bad happens, we pray and we say, God, get me out of this mess. Rather, James is saying, pray for wisdom so you will know how to grow from your problems. Not just get me out of the mess, but how can I grow through this so I don't keep repeating the same mistakes I keep making over and over again? Like the Jews who were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, walking around in circles because they kept doing the same wrong things over and over again. Lord, Instead, pray, what do you want me to see as I go through this? What do you want to change in me as I go through this trial? So pray. Third thing, receive. We see that in one twelve. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, which you will, you will get through it, He will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. I think verse 12 fits really well after verse 4 and could flow right into after verse 4. 
James says there's going to be a reward for hanging in there in the trial. Heaven. Life is not fair here on earth. If you think it is, you're going to be sadly disappointed. But it's going to be fair there. And there is where your real life is. I know some of you have been through a lot. Some of you have been through a divorce or the death of a loved one. You've been through sickness, including COVID. I want to tell you a little bit about my mom. When she was 71, she had a stroke. And she was always a very talkative person. Man, she would talk your ear off. But after the stroke, she really couldn't say too much. She'd say a few words and then laugh a little bit because she couldn't get the rest of the words out. So my dad, who was extremely quiet, had to become the talker. And he still doesn't talk a whole lot, but he talks more than he used to. And about four years after that, my mom and dad were in a little fender bender. And the airbags inflated. And it was in February in northeast Ohio, so really cold. My dad got out of the car to deal with the other driver and, the, and wait for the police. They came. And, and my mom said in the car, because it was really cold outside, apparently there was a little leak in the airbag. So the car filled up with dust and smoke from the airbag contents. Now, I would have quickly got out of there, but she sat in there for 30 minutes. And so a few months later, she developed a little cough. And the cough got worse until she finally went to the doctor. And they were perplexed. They didn't know what was wrong with her. They did not know the origin of this cough and really couldn't do much for her. Her cough got progressively worse. And her, so she needed oxygen. So she started on oxygen at a low level and then a higher level and a higher level. Until the very end, it was the highest level of oxygen you could get. It was just like blowing down her lungs because her soft, spongy lungs became hard like wood. Now, I could tell you something. Seeing someone die that can't get their breath for a long period of time is a rotten way to die. But I can tell you this. She had such a sweet spirit. And loved the Lord and was so much looking forward to heaven. So that was a good example to me of someone, even in the worst of circumstances, could still rejoice in the Lord and receive what he had for her, her reward. So some of you, as I said, you're in the midst of a trial right now. He knows the number of hairs on your head, the Bible says. And for, him, for me, that's getting a lot easier. Now, he could end your problem tomorrow, and perhaps he will, but he might not. And so you have to be resolute in knowing that he's got a greater purpose for this for me now. And remember this, you're never alone. Listen to these last few quotes from people who really went through terrible times. First, Terry Anderson, who was kept as a prisoner. I think he was a journalist and was imprisoned in, in the Middle East for seven years. He said he developed a deeper love for God. During those seven years of being in a prison. Or pro golfer Paul Azinger. Who recovered from cancer and said that I am happier and more confident now than I've ever been in my life. This has been the greatest experience of my life. Going through cancer. Or Joni Erickson Tata. She said, it's not a bed of affliction anymore. It's become an altar of praise. I know that my suffering is successful when I'm faithful to Jesus in it. Let's pray. 
Lord, I know many of the folks I'm speaking to right now today are dealing with a difficult problem, an issue, something that's confounding and frustrating. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen them up in it. I want you to deliver them, yes, but I I want your complete purpose to be fulfilled in it. Their, Their issue and mine and what we're all facing in this world that we live in. Lord, help us all to apply the word of God to our lives. That we would see the fruit of it and that we would be more like Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen.